Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, the novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she hid millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where, but that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now... Part 14 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation by Rich Housick, Arnold Rundick, and Lloyd Auerbach. Chapter 52 Nate knocked on the foreman's front door. It was answered almost immediately by a sheriff's deputy. Evidently, Chief Lewis had called in the county's law enforcement agency to help in the search. Who are you? she asked Nate. Nate was surprised by her brusqueness. Nate Rainey, I'm a... Uh, he tried to think of how to describe his relationship to the family. I'm a private detective working with the family on another matter. What matter is that? Is Chief Lewis here? Nate asked, hoping a little name-dropping might get him past the scrutiny of the deputy. We're working on a possible kidnapping, Mr. Rainey, she said, emphasizing his civilian status. Kidnapping? Has that been established? Has there been a ransom? Deputy, would you stand aside and let Detective Rainey in, please? Said a voice from inside the house. Chief Lewis waved Nate into the living room. Nate recognized the trappings of a missing child investigation. There was equipment to record incoming phone calls on both the landlines and the cell phones, a topographical map laid out on the coffee table, and nearly a dozen uniformed officers from both the Danville Police and the County Sheriff's Office milling about, half of them on their phones. Greg and Marcia sat on the sofa. There was no sign of Daisy. Nate shook the chief's hand. He pulled the thumb drive Emily had made for him from his jacket pocket. Here's all the recordings Dr. Day's people made during their investigation. Their investigation? Chief Lewis asked. I thought you two were partners. Their portion of the investigation. I'm more of a devil's advocate in the process. The chief handed the thumb drive to a middle-aged man wearing a police windbreaker, but not in uniform. An evidence tech, Nate assumed. See if there's anything useful on this, Lewis ordered the man. He nodded, then scurried over to a corner where he plugged the drive into a laptop and began inspecting its contents. Need an extra set of eyes? Nate asked. Chief Lewis shrugged. Why not? What do you know so far? The kid went missing sometime during the night. The alarm was set, but didn't go off. No sign of forced entry. Our best guess is he ran away. The parents say he didn't know the alarm code, but... That's what they said about his mother's computer password, Nate countered. Password? He's a sharp kid. I wouldn't assume he didn't know the code. The chief nodded. 
Yeah, several boxes of breakfast cereal were missing. The kind of thing a kid might take with him if he was... Packing supplies, Nate finished. But why? He seemed pretty well adjusted other than the ghost thing. Chief Lewis cast a glance at the parents, who had a guilty look on their faces. The parents think he may have overheard them talking about taking him to a psychiatrist. So why all the kidnapping gear? Just covering our bases. There's a chance someone got wind of the whole bank robbery connection to the alleged ghost. We're getting ready to start a grid search. Nate nodded. Okay if I look around? Do your thing, the chief invited. Nate looked over at the foremans and gave them what he hoped was a reassuring nod. Daisy's okay? he asked. Marcia nodded. She's with a friend. Don't worry. We'll find him, Nate promised. He looked around the house. The living room looked much smaller with all the people crowded into it. Nate pushed his way past them, ignoring the questioning stares from the officers wondering who this guy was traipsing through a potential crime scene. He made his way to the kitchen first. There were a few people crowded around the small table, writing on another topographical map, this one with a clearly delineated grid drawn on it with colored sharpie markers. Nate smiled when he saw one of the officers working on a list of potential sites where Danny might have gone to. The door to the pantry was open. Nate went inside. It was filled with both the types of food you would expect for a family with young kids, as well as baking supplies and a collection of high-end appliances. He spotted the empty spot in front of the narrow window where he guessed the breakfast cereal was kept, easily reachable by the children. Nate ran his finger along the empty shelf. He didn't feel any dust. But when he lifted up his finger, there was a small speck of something stuck to the tip. He looked closer. A fleck of paint. Nate looked around the window frame to see if the paint was peeling, but it was clearly recently repainted. He leaned over and checked the latch. It was locked. He undid the simple lock and opened the window. A few flecks of paint fluttered onto the sill. He poked his head through the window and looked at the outside. The window had clearly been painted shut, but recently someone had forced it open. It looked like they had even cut through the paint with a knife. Had the police noticed this? Had they asked the foremans if they had done it? The window was narrow, but still big enough for a man to fit through. But could he have gotten out this way? No. It might have been that the latch was undone when the window was painted shut, but he wouldn't have been able to latch it after he left. Nate left the pantry and looked around the kitchen. He inspected the windows. They were newer ones with vinyl frames. Their latches were also locked, and in the upper corner of each one was a pair of small plastic rectangles. Nate recognized them as wireless alarm sensors. Inside one of them was a AAA battery, while the other housed a magnet. As long as they were close to one another, the alarm system would report the window as closed. He recognized the system as one of the do-it-yourself kits they advertised on TV. Each window that was capable of being opened had a sensor on it, except the one in the pantry. He checked the back door. There didn't seem to be a sensor there, either. Nate left the kitchen and crossed back out into the living room until he had a view of the front door. There was a pair of sensors at the top of the doorframe. He returned to the kitchen and took a closer look at the back door. In the spot where the sensors should have been, there was a pair of faint rectangles of adhesive residue and a cut-off screw. Nate opened the back door and left it that way. He returned to the living room and approached the foreman's. Greg, Marcia, do you have alarm sensors on the back door? Of course. Greg said. And you didn't take them off for some reason? Greg and Marcia exchanged a puzzled look. Chief Lewis overheard the exchange. What did you find? I think someone broke in here last night. How? 
Marcia asked. Through the pantry window, Nate said. We checked that. There's no alarm sensor on it, but it was locked. We've never opened that window, Greg added. Yes, it was painted shut, but someone forced it open. Do you know if it was latched before last night? Greg shrugged. I think he left through the back door. Marcia shook her head. I have the alarm configured so that if one of the sensors has a low battery or can't be detected by the base station, it sends me an alert. She pulled out her phone and opened the alarm app. It says the back door is online and closed, and has been all night. Nate looked through the doorway to the kitchen to the back door, which was wide open. The foremans and Chief Lewis followed his gaze. Well, that puts a whole new spin on the situation, Lewis said. Someone took him? Someone took Danny? Marcia asked, stunned. Greg put a comforting arm around her. Why haven't we heard from them? What do they want? They obviously want to talk to Maureen, Jennifer said. The four of them turned to find Dr. Day standing in the doorway, pushing her way past the overeager deputy. Sam Lightman followed her. That's just a theory. We don't know that for sure, Chief Lewis said. Nate found himself disagreeing with his old captain. You did say the word was around town. Seems the most likely motive, whether or not Danny can actually communicate with a dead woman. Marcia and Greg exchanged guilty looks. Oh my God, what have I done? Greg asked. I told the guys at the barber shop about it. Half the town must know. It's not your fault, Chief Lewis assured them. What about her husband, Dale Everly? Nate asked. Have you checked him out? Yes, I had an officer check in on him. He's living in a halfway house just outside of town. No sign of the kid. He could have kidnapped him and put him somewhere else, Marcia insisted. Possibly the chief acknowledged. But he has to check in and out of the halfway house. They keep pretty close tabs on him. Nate found the chief's remark curious. Even the best halfway house may do a bed check at night, but usually didn't keep track of the comings and goings of their guests. Why would he dismiss Dale Everly as a suspect so casually? The good news is we can narrow the search, Nate said. Why is that? Chief Lewis asked. If we go with the assumption that it's someone who's chasing after the missing money... They're going to be in the area. From what I've read about the case, there was a limited amount of time she had to stash the loot, so wherever they took Danny is going to be nearby, and likely between here and the bank. Right. The chief barked commands that the officers gathered around the kitchen table. Prioritize the areas between here and downtown, and let's get that search started. Only armed officers on the front line. Put volunteers in as backup. Chief, I may be able to help you narrow it down a bit more. All eyes turned to Sam Lightman, who had kept quiet until now. And who might you be? the chief asked. This is Sam Lightman, Jennifer answered. Well, that doesn't help me because I don't know who you are either, or why you're here. Nate stepped in. This is Dr. Jennifer Day. Lewis nodded. Ah, the ghost hunter. Parapsychologist, Jennifer corrected. And Sam is a very gifted psychic. He's helped the police find missing children before. Is that a fact? the chief asked. I understand your skepticism, Sam said, but it can't hurt to let me try, can it? I want to know what he can find out, Greg said, rising to his feet. Marcia grabbed his hand, trying to pull him back down. He shook her off. What do you need? Greg asked. Well, if I can handle something that belonged to Danny, something personal that he has a strong connection to, that would help. Nate looked away. Part of him was furious at Jennifer for bringing Sam with her. These parents didn't need any more psychic mumbo-jumbo. I'll take you to his room, Greg said, then headed for the stairs.
As Sam and Jennifer passed, Nate met her gaze. Give him a chance, Jennifer pleaded. Nate said nothing. He waited for the chief and one of his officers to follow, then brought up the rear. Marcia stayed on the couch, staring at the phones on the coffee table. Greg opened the door to Danny's room. There was no need to turn on the lights. The afternoon sun was pouring in through the window. The bed was still a mess. Danny's backpack sat on the chair by his desk. Greg went straight for a stuffed snake stuffed between the side of the bed and the wall. He likes it because it's the only stuffed animal his sister won't touch, he explained, as he handed the bright green serpent to Sam. Sam held it in his hands. He closed his eyes and slowly took in a deep breath. It seemed like everyone else in the room breathed with him. Sam shook his head. No, I'm not getting anything. He looked around the room, went over to the desk and started picking up various items. Rocks, a Lego pirate ship, a collection of colored pencils he used for his drawings. He touched them like he was reading Braille. Nate took the time to look around the room himself. He saw Danny's shoes next to his closet. How did these police think he ran away without his shoes? It made him furious to think of how much they had overlooked. They had made the initial assumption that Danny was a runaway, and were only looking for evidence to support that theory. He couldn't stand to watch the show Sam was putting on for the others. Instead, his eyes wandered over some pictures Danny had taped to the wall. There were illustrations of pirate battles, drawings of spaceships, and monsters, typical for a boy his age. I'm not getting anything on Danny, Sam reported. Greg sighed with disappointment. Thank you for trying. What about Maureen? Can you make contact with her? Jennifer asked. Sam shrugged. He looked to Greg. Do you have anything that belonged to her? Greg thought for a moment. The photographs. He left the room at a run, then returned a few moments later with the shoebox Danny had found in the attic. He handed them to Sam. The psychic took the box and sat down on Danny's bed. He opened it and placed his fingers on the loose photos. Nate ignored Sam, focusing instead on the pictures on the wall. One of them was different from the rest. It had a boy in it, a boy who looked like Danny, and a woman, but not Marcia. It looked like they were in space, with yellow stars surrounding them. No, not space. They were standing, not floating, and there was a tool in Danny's hand. It looked like a large pickaxe. It wasn't space. It was a cave. A cave speckled with golden nuggets, and with what looked like wooden beams above them. Is there a gold mine nearby? Nate asked. Then he realized that Sam had asked the exact same question at the moment he had. Jennifer looked to Nate. Greg looked at Sam. I think Maureen is telling me about an old gold mine nearby, Sam explained. Nate pointed at the drawing. Kind of like this one, he asked. Everyone in the room focused their attention on the picture taped to the wall. There used to be a mine up in the hills, Chief Lewis said. It was sealed off a long time ago. Some kids had gotten lost in there. Well, Chief, Jennifer said, maybe that's a good place to start. Chapter 53 Dale carried Danny as far as he could after driving the rental car down the old fire road. After a half a mile, he set Danny down. Do you think you could walk for a while? Dale asked. Danny didn't reply. Look, I don't want to hurt you. I just want to find what Maureen hid and then go away. I promise. You'll be okay. And you'll never see me again. Dale removed Danny's blindfold. Danny squinted into the evening light. I believe him, 
Maureen told Danny. Everything she remembered about Dale assured her that he didn't mean Danny any harm, despite Liam's threats. In fact, he probably saw the boy the same way Maureen did. He was about the age their child might have been if things hadn't gone so wrong that day. Danny nodded. He was scared, but he was glad that Maureen was with him. Dale looked around the woods. He had taken them as far as he could without being exactly sure where they were headed. Maureen had taken them up to the old mine once. He remembered it was walled off with concrete, but she had told him they had found a secret entrance. That must have been how she managed to hide the duffel bag from the bank inside. Could you ask Maureen which way? You don't have to ask me to ask her, Danny reminded him. It was still hard for Dale to believe that Maureen was with them. He wished he could see her, too. But for whatever reason, his only connection to his dead wife was a ten-year-old boy, who he had bound with zip ties. Dale unfolded his pocket knife. Danny started to back away. I'm just going to cut your feet free, he said. You promise you won't try to run off? Danny nodded meekly and watched as Dale sliced through the plastic strips holding his ankles together. He paused for a minute, then also cut free the ties binding Danny's wrists. For a second, Danny thought about running, but he figured the man looked pretty strong and would probably catch him if he tried. Besides, Maureen had told him everything would be okay, and he trusted her. This way, Maureen said, pointing toward a gap in the trees. Danny copied her gesture, indicating the spot she had shown him. Dale looked over in the direction he was pointing, then reached out and offered Danny his hand. The boy tentatively placed his small hand in the man's rough grip, and they started off into the trees. Maureen led the way. Danny marveled at the way she moved. He couldn't quite see her feet, and at times it seemed like she was skating through the tall weeds without bending or moving them as she passed. They continued deeper into the woods until they reached a trail that followed the contour of the mountain. Dale recognized the path now and knew they were close. The path opened up to a view of the valley below. It was on the opposite side of the ridge where Maureen's house was, but close enough for adventurous kids to discover and explore. The mine entrance was nothing more than a wide spot in the path. It was overgrown with shrubs and vines, but it was the spot Dale remembered. He pushed aside some of the plants. There was a concrete plug blocking the narrow entrance. Over here, Danny said. He continued walking down the path, following Maureen, who led them into a thicket of bushes. Danny let go of Dale's hand and dropped to his knees and peered into the dark undergrowth. She says there's another entrance here. It's small, but we should fit. It's the one her friend found that time she got stuck inside without a light. Dale remembered the story. He set his backpack down and pulled out a flashlight from one of the outside pockets. He turned it on and got down to ground level where Danny was looking. The beam of the flashlight swept across where the ground met the rock of the mountain, and Dale saw the triangular-shaped opening that swallowed the light. You first, he said to Danny. Danny looked over to Maureen, who gave him a reassuring smile. Dale handed him the flashlight, then pulled out a lantern from inside the pack along with a canteen. He watched as the boy wriggled through the bushes and into the hole. For a moment, Dale wondered if he was going to fit. Obviously, Maureen had managed to get in all those years ago. He had grown lean and fit in prison, but he wasn't a small boy or a slender woman. After Danny had disappeared inside, he called to him. Danny, are you all right? Yeah, it smells funny in here. Dale didn't want to speculate what could be the source of the odor. Perhaps a dead animal? Or maybe just the damp mustiness of a cave? He pushed the lantern and canteen ahead of him, then rolled over onto his back and reached in with his left arm. 
By stretching his left shoulder ahead of him, he was able to make himself skinny enough to squeeze his torso inside, pushing with his legs. But then his hips got hung up on the narrow opening. He tried to twist himself, but there wasn't an angle that allowed him to slip through, and he lost any leverage with his legs. Help him, Maureen said to Danny. The boy walked up to the stuck man and offered his hands. Dale reached up and took hold of Danny's arms just above the wrist. The boy leaned back and pulled, his feet sliding on the dirty floor of the mine. Dale wriggled his hips, and after a few tugs, finally slipped through. He took a moment to collect himself, then looked around. They were in a small space that narrowed like a funnel toward the opening they had crawled through. Dale detected the odor of wet rock that Danny had complained about. The chamber was just tall enough for Danny to be able to stand, but Dale only had room to get to his knees. This way, Danny said. The boy headed into a passageway that was about the size of a tube you'd find in a playground. After eight or ten feet, it opened into a larger shaft that was like the main tunnel for the mine. There were telltale tool marks and boreholes in the walls. Dale opened the canteen and offered it to Danny. The boy drank thirstily, spilling some of the cool water, soaking his shirt. Dale drank a bit himself, then, catching himself before asking Danny to ask Maureen, said into the air, Well, which way now? Danny looked to Maureen. She peered into the darkness that enveloped the mind in both directions. I don't know, she said, a note of fear in her voice that made Danny nervous. I can't remember where I put it. Danny relayed the message to Dale. He didn't seem disappointed. Well, I guess we just pick a direction and start looking. Maureen shrugged in answer to Danny's inquisitive look. You choose, she said to Danny. Danny shone his light down one end of the tunnel, then the other, and decided they would start with the one that looked bigger. Let's try this way. All right, Dale said. I guess this makes us prospectors, huh? Danny smiled at the notion. Although part of him was still afraid he might not see his family again, he imagined he was in search of a hidden pirate treasure. Maureen followed behind them. She thought she heard something, a voice, but it wasn't Danny. Dale? she asked. Was that you? Dale went on, ignoring her question. Danny looked back at Maureen and shrugged. She waited for them to go ahead, listening in the dark. There it was again, definitely a voice. She remembered hearing it when they were on the way to the mine, asking her where they were. Not across the room faint, but like a faraway echo. She had told it they were going to the gold mine. This time, it wasn't asking her a question. It was trying to tell her something. The words eluded her, but then she was able to catch a couple of them. Two words that gave her a feeling of hope, even though she didn't know who was saying them. We're coming, it said. She didn't know what it meant but she instantly felt Danny was going to be okay. No matter what else happened, that was all she was hoping for, and now she had a reason for that hope. Hurry, she whispered back to the voice. Please, hurry. Chapter 54 Nate followed Chief Lewis's car through the curves of the fire road. It was the same stretch where he had been run off the pavement and nearly killed. Part of him expected to see the gray Hummer looming in his rearview mirror. Eventually, they reached a turnoff that led to a clearing. Nate pulled up behind Chief Lewis's car and another police cruiser that had arrived before them. Maureen wants us to hurry, Sam said from the back seat. Nate sighed and glanced sideways at Jennifer. She returned a warning glare. Nate opened his door and stepped out into the oncoming dusk. Chief Lewis was conferring with his officers, 
as they unloaded a collection of sledgehammers and pickaxes from the trunk of the police car. Nate recognized one of the men. He was the one he had met when he first arrived in town and gave Lewis a courtesy visit. MacDonald was his name, he recalled. One of the other officers pointed at a spot in the woods. Looks like we're not the only ones out here. Nate saw what he had noticed, the telltale path of a car that had driven off the road and into the tall grass. The trail led to a thicket of trees that almost completely concealed a car parked there. Go get the plate number, Lewis ordered. If it's unlocked, take a look inside. One of the officers finished unloading the last of the demolition tools out of the trunk and trudged off into the weeds to check out the car. That trail looks fresh, Nate observed. Yeah, five will get you ten, that's our guy. Looks like your psychic friend was right. He's not psychic. I was able to pick out the same clues in Danny's room that he did. Lewis shrugged. Maybe, but where did Danny get the idea to draw a picture of a gold mine in the first place? Nate didn't have an answer for that one. But whatever the explanation, it wasn't important now. It was increasingly likely that Danny had been kidnapped by someone who was convinced the boy could lead them to the missing money. And aside from Sam Lightman stating the obvious... They needed to hurry. Chapter 55 Dale and Danny reached the end of the tunnel. At their feet was a pile of rubble. Dale shone his light at the ceiling. The overhead timbers that stretched across the top of most of the mine shaft were absent, which explained the mound of rocks and dirt. He poked around the debris. Did Maureen have time to bury the duffel bag? Dale set the lantern down and dug through the shards, cutting his hands on the sharp edges as he furiously moved the broken stone out of the way. Then he felt something that wasn't rock or dirt. It was a piece of what looked like canvas. He moved the lantern to give himself a better view. There was something there. He dug some more, brushing aside the debris, his excitement growing. Did you find it? Danny asked. I don't know. There's something. Dale had uncovered enough of the fabric now that he could grab it in his hand. He pulled... At first, whatever it was didn't want to come out. Then it gave way, and Dale fell backwards, smashing his head against the hard floor. He saw stars for a second. Then he held the scrap of fabric up in his hands. It wasn't one of the duffel bags they had acquired to carry away the cash and contents of the safe deposit boxes. It was thicker and smaller, a khaki color instead of the black of the bag Maureen had escaped with. Dale looked at it closely. It looked like it was a cover for an old canteen. He threw it against the wall, then crawled back to the pile of rubble on his hands and knees, throwing stones aside frantically, revealing only the fact that the missing money wasn't there. Was Liam right? Was Maureen playing with them? Where is it? he asked in a low, menacing voice. Dale turned and looked directly at Danny. The cheerful air he had presented earlier, almost as if he wanted to be Danny's friend, was gone. He was looking at Danny, but he was speaking to Maureen. You can't do this to me. I need that money. If I don't find it, they'll kill me. Maureen was shocked by his revelation. Who? she asked. Danny repeated the question. Who do you think? Have you forgotten everything? We had partners, and they have been waiting fifteen years to get their hands on that loot. Do you think I really care? No bag of money is going to bring you back. Maureen kneeled down beside Dale. She didn't know what to do. She still had no memory of hiding the money. But if what he was saying was true, then Danny was in real danger. She was sure Dale wouldn't hurt him. But what about the other man from the motel, Liam? 
or the mysterious mastermind. Why couldn't she remember where she hid the money? She needed to remember. Maybe if she went back to the bank and retraced her steps, something would trigger the memory. But she didn't want to leave Danny. She couldn't do that. But she had to do something. They had to get out of there. Danny, tell him I remember something. There's an air shaft in the ceiling about halfway back to the entrance. I think I pushed it up there and wedged it in with a piece of wood. Danny repeated Maureen's words. Dale looked skeptical, but he was running out of options as well. Give me your flashlight, he said to Danny. Danny handed over the flashlight to Dale. Dale stood up and picked up the lantern. Stay here, he said. I'll be back. He turned and started walking down the tunnel, using the flashlight to illuminate the ceiling. But soon he reached a bend in the tunnel, and the light was soaked up by the dark rock of the mine until it was just a hint of a dim yellow glow in the dark. Danny started to cry. Maureen still had awareness of her surroundings. She knew where Danny was in the darkness. Danny, can you hear me? Yeah, he said softly. Can you see me? Danny peered into the darkness in her direction. Kind of, he answered. He had a sense she was there, but since he couldn't see the floor or walls, it was as if she was floating in a big, dark, empty space. Okay, stand up. Walk toward me with your hands in front of you. Danny followed her instructions. Reach out to your left. Do you feel the wall? Danny moved his arm out to his side and wrapped his knuckles against the stone. Ow, he said, then started crying again. You're okay, Maureen assured him. Everything's going to be okay. Just put your hand against the wall and walk slowly toward me, okay? Danny nodded. He reached out slowly with his fingertips until he felt the wall, then started taking small steps, letting the fingers of his left hand glide over the rough stone while he kept his right hand out in front of him. You're doing great, Maureen told him. You're so brave. Danny sniffled and wiped away his tears with the sleeve of his pajamas and focused on Maureen as he continued walking slowly into the dark. The voice Maureen had heard earlier was back, still faint but closer. Where are you? it asked. The mine, she replied. We're in the mine. Please, help. Who are you talking to? Danny asked. Someone who can help us, she replied. She hoped that was true. Thank you for listening to Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. Remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review not only this podcast, but the novel you are currently listening to. The links to Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads are in the description for this episode. You can sign up for the Insomniacs Snoozeletter at bedtimestories.studio and get a free bookmark. And if you want to know more about the Rainy Day Investigations Paranormal Mystery Book Series, visit rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can find out more about the host of Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs at richhosick.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.